father's lightsaber. What? Lightsabers, precious? Welcome to What's Lightsaber's Precious. The Lord of the Rings and Star Wars Encyclopodcast, where we waste time in fictional wikis. My name is Ryan. And my name is Joanna. Hey Ryan, gonna throw you a curveball here. Whoa, hold on, hold on. Let me get my mitt on. Let me get, get behind the plate. Let me put my mask on. Alright, alright, let's catch that catch that ball. What are your thoughts on Game of Thrones? Well, uh, we watched it. The last season was um it was fun and it ended. And it's done now. How do you feel about the second episode of season eight? <laughs> I couldn't tell you what happened in that one. It was called A Knight of the Seven Kingdoms. Are you sure? Is that the one where Brienne got knighted? Yeah, so she, I don't know. Whatever. Yeah. Was, that episode. It was that one. It was where Brienne got knighted and the, the dragon had a birthday party and and Sir Davos brought a cake and everyone ate the cake and they were really happy. And then they um, had a, uh, a pinata that was shaped like the Night King and they hit it and it was full of... Uh, snow and it was beautiful in slow motion and nymira the wolf was there and so was snow and shaggy dog okay so for somebody who like 10 seconds ago claimed they couldn't tell you what the episode about that was about that is very very specific well because i was reading the synopsis off uh the old uh game of thrones uh, the wiki of ice and fire here so uh you know i really i had to remind myself and all that stuff really did happen they got all the details and you know what the funniest part was you know how everybody in game of thrones is like super horny all the time and doing it. That's like the, the main thing. The that funniest part was when Tormund Giant Spain got frostbite on his dick because he was trying to do it with the snow. Nah, I don't see that in the synopsis, Joanna. Are you, are you sure it's, you're watching? It's, it's too hot for them to even write down. It's just something you have to experience with your eyes. Oh, I see. Censorship in action. Yeah, but they can do it because it's on HBO. Sen- HBO, they can do anything, including yeah. frostbite on the tip of your dick. Alright, so, um, is that your Lord of the Rings news this week? No, my Lord of the Rings news is that the guy who wrote that episode, Frostbite Dick and All, yeah. uh, is going to be one of the writers on the Amazon Lord of the Rings series. How many writers will there be? Well, let's see. It looks like J.D. Payne, Patrick McKay, and Brian Cogman, so at least three. All right. I mean, most of these shows have a boardroom of writers who have to run, they have the plots and the dialogue has to go through all of them, and they all throw things in the table, and they all say, I want want this guy to say this. And they say, no, that's stupid. I want she to say this instead. And then somebody says, actually, she should say this. And they say, yes, that's right. She should say that. Yeah, yeah. And so when Brian Cogman worked alongside David Benioff, Benioff? Benioff. Yeah, Benioff. And D.B. Weiss, back on Game of Thrones, most of the time it was like, she should say something horny. And they're like, no, make it... uh, Make it ten times hornier. No, oh. no. I need at least eight times as much horny as what you've given me. We can't do it, DB. It's just too much. It's too much horniness. The horniness levels are off the chart. I'll tell you when it's enough horniness. No, no. I can't. Oh my god, it's super horny. Yeah, so that he's dealt with that. So the Lord of the Rings series should be a breeze. Cool. Because nobody ever gets horny in Lord of the Rings. Yeah. yeah. And, like, they, sometimes they get horny for boats. Boats and, and... And jewelry. Adventures. And adventures, but never for anything other than that. Cool. Yeah, so that's my news. Nice. I feel like it veered a lot towards the horniness direction. 
What do you have? Well, it's been a couple weeks since you recorded. Sorry, guys. We have lives. The big Star Wars news as of late is that Galaxy's Edge at Disneyland in California has officially opened. Wait, it did? It's like a soft opening. They're letting, like, you, you could apply for a lottery and you get a, a, a date and a time to go in. And they have like little, uh, you know, three hour long windows you get to stay there for. And everyone who's gone in has said it is... Super cool and super great. Only three so, and a half hours. You're only going to be able to go on like one ride. Well, that's the thing. It's a limited amount of people inside. Like it's oh, so you can just whip on through it. Well, I mean, there's still a wait. There's still a wait for stuff. But I don't know what the exact details are. But they've uh, they sent through people such as George Lucas and Mark Hamill and Harrison Ford and J.J. Abrams have all gone through. Uh, Billy D. Williams went through. Ooh. Uh, so they've all gotten to experience the Galaxy's Edge. I mean, they experienced it firsthand when they went to the Galaxy far, far away. But now they get a simulacrum of it in California, and apparently it is very good. They're talking about how the lightsabers cost two hundred dollars. That's the big line right now is to build a lightsaber. Uh, as well as ride the Millennium Falcon ride, where I read that if you sit in the far left seat on the Millennium Falcon, you actually get to drive it. Oh. You get to control the movement but of the But you don't pod. really, because it's on a track. No, it's not. It's a simulator type thing. Mm, it's still going to be on a track. Hey, you know what No, Joanna, it's not, because when you move the little thing, it actually will move the cockpit. Like, you feel like you're actually driving it, apparently. Whoa. Don't tell me don't tell me what my news hey, is. Hey, you know what I think would be a cool hey, idea? Hey, you know what I think is a cool idea? Not interrupting me with a lot of BS nonsense. No, I want to tell you something. I, tell, I want to cool. tell you before 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 we get too much into this, I want to tell you what I think would be a cool idea. Right. It's a lottery, right? Yeah. And so if your number comes up, you get to go to the Star Wars land. Right. But what if they also had these tickets in the lottery called the red ticket? Okay. And if you get a red ticket, Mark Hamill comes to your house and kills you. Now, you said this was a cool idea? Yeah, you get to get killed by Mark Hamill. Like, presumably you're a huge Star Wars fan. He will come to your house with a real lightsaber and he will cut your head off. See, I don't know. I don't know if that's what I want. I feel like a lot of Star Wars fans, like, they don't have the most will to live. Just because they're nerds. And nerds, like, generally speaking, don't want to be alive. So what cooler way to go out than by getting your head literally cut off with a real lightsaber by Mark Hamill? Red ticket. Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run is a ride that recreates the experience of flying the famous spacecraft potted by Han Solo and Chewbacca in the film franchise. Each ride vehicle sits six people, and the ride is designed to be interactive, so guests will use controls to either pilot the ship, use blasters to defend the craft, or keep the ship running smoothly as flight engineers. So you're kind of all on board, kind of like all hitting switches and buttons and stuff. Whoa, you each have a role. It sounds kind of fun, right? Yeah. Oga's Cantina. The bar serves cocktails and beers and souvenir glasses and features entertainment courtesy of DJ Rex. Yeah, it's going to be my stop. Talk about Rex. Rex is like that dumb robot that messes everything he's up. A star, he's a former Star Tours pilot, yep. now a DJ. Literally gets people killed. You can get a Yubnub, which is a Malibu pineapple rum, Sailor Jerry spice rum, citrus juice, and passion fruit drink. Um, I can't even parcel that, but I want one. It costs $42. It comes in a custom mug. Are you see It costs $42? I rescind my previous comment. I don't think I can afford one. I think you're paying for the mug more than the Yubnub there. The lightsabers, again, you can construct your own with the help of Savi, the master, and they cost $200 a pop. <sighs> this place is expensive. Well, it's Disneyland. Of course it is. Disney- yeah, but I feel like Harry Potter World, like, getting a wand from Ollivanders did not cost $200. Getting a butterbeer did not cost $42. You can also get a make a droid, build your own little remote control droid, and that also costs, like, $200. Um, there's also the milk stand. You'll be happy to know they have both blue and green milk at the milk stand. For $58 a piece. Uh, that's probably the cheapest thing you can buy in, in a in Galaxy's Edge. Uh, there's also a new ride that's going to open at the end of 2019 called Rise of the Resistance, which people are thinking is not opening because it's related heavily into the Episode 9 Ooh, story. so it's going to be spoilers. Yep. So anyway, 
Sounds pretty cool. Uh, sounds pretty expensive. But at some point, save our pennies. Seriously, <sighs> save our credits. And we'll fly to Galaxy's Edge. I ain't buying a $42 drink, though. We'll split it. Even between two people. Come on. You go to Galaxy's Edge, you gotta get a yub nub. You pay $21 a pop, you get this big old mug to drink it out of. I have never paid that much for a drink in my life. The most I've ever paid for a drink in my life is like $7. Now listen, it's a yub nub, so I think an Ewok is the one who gets to prepare it for you. And they shake it up, and they have the cute little hands, and they're behind the bar, and they're doing cartwheels and stuff, and they're making you drink, and they give it I to you. I pay, might pay $42 for the experience. And they serve if it If they all- also prepare a Japanese-style steak at my table in front of me. Well, they're not going to do that. They're going to uh, flay a stormtrooper in front of you. Ooh, And ooh. Uh, serve the drink, and it's... Uh, uh, and forty two dollars—that's a steal. And it's uh, in in their skull. You can not only bathe in the blood of fascists, but you can have a nice drink. That's Ewoks. Yeah, well, anyway, cool. Galaxy's Edge. Check it out if you got a a ticket and not the red one. Hopefully, to get in, it's gonna be the red one. That's a lot. Of, you know, all the news that's fit to print from the last couple of weeks. But Joanna, I'm here not for news. I'm here not for discussion of being murdered by Mark Hamill. Uh, I'm here to learn about Lord of the Rings, and you are my teacher, so please teach me. Okay, well, I have another out-of-left-field question for you. Yes. Do you like science? Science is epic for the win. Really? I freaking love science. Really? I post on my Facebook group, I freaking, but freaking is not freaking, you know what it is, love science, and we talk about how epic science is. I-F-L-S? I-F-L-S. Are you a top poster on I-F-L-S? Yes. Elon Musk is epic. Well, I'll tell you something, Ryan. I hate science. Oh, really? Um, I think scientists are always lying. They just make things up. Yeah, I don't want to talk because to a scientist. They, mother, mother effers always lying, getting me pissed. Freaking magnets. How do they work? Nobody knows. Uh, and if scientists claim they do, they're lying. However. Now, you say this as a person with an anthropology degree. I'm kind of wondering. That's like barely science. <laughs> I say this as somebody with an anthropology degree. It's kind of a squishy science, That barely science, counts as right? science. It's, it's, it's not just soft. It's like gelatinous. It's like a trampoline. Yeah. But, uh, no. So, one of the many things scientists are doing when um, they're taking a break from convincing everybody that climate change is real and um, conducting a very vaguely motivated uh, war against truth and, and Jesus and yeah yeah right, and my god said we need vaccines and, or whatever okay so one of the things they do is they watch some nerd shit oh i mean that's why they're that's why they're scientists that's why they're scientists because they are some nerd asses like, i can't get a job like a cool person i better do science and hang out with other people who wear glasses yeah so um they adjusted their glasses several times over the past decades to write a scientific article or two about lord of the rings but it's fantasy, not science fiction. Oh, but that doesn't mean they can't or won't apply science to it. Well, please do share the science of the Lord of the Rings. All right, so I'm going to take you through a handful of scientific studies I found. Okay. This being Lord of the Rings and Lord of the Rings having a pretty strong psychological component, there's a lot that get into the psychology of various characters. I only grabbed a handful of them. Because I think after a while, that kind of thing could get a little stale. Um, I prefer not the, depressing. the only true science, which is math. I definitely... I read XKCD. I know about these things. I have never read XKCD, hence I am not qualified to discuss any math-related studies whatsoever, so I don't have any. I do have some more hard science ones, though, if you want to get hard. Well, I want to get epic. I want You want to get epic hard. Epic hard, because I freaking love science. Okay, so the first one I want to talk about... So, um, this is a psychologist called Paula Jean Manners discussing 
Frodo's characterization in Lord of the Rings from a Kleinian perspective. What does that mean? Okay, so a Kleinian perspective. This is a little bit wild. Uh, at least the terminology of it is a little bit wild. All right, so I am going to summarize it in the words of this article. The loss of an aspect of the childhood self and the futile desire to reconcile this loss in the face of death present key Kleinian concepts. Klein describes the child in an intolerable state of anxiety in the face of potential annihilation. To survive, the child develops defense mechanisms such as splitting. So they're saying, I'm just a kid and life is a nightmare. Life is a nightmare and sometimes I split. Split. Do you know what split means? I've seen the James McAvoy film by M. Night Shyamalan. That's exactly what it is. You get like a bunch of different personalities. They all have different like ways of talking. And one of them's the beast. Yeah. One of them's the beast. Except in this case, you're not the one that's actually splitting. You're splitting other people. So So you use your your Hanway Elite Practical Katana to chop them in half. To chop them in half. No, you're splitting the world. Essentially, it's, it's a very simple concept that they've applied these weird uh, psychological terms to you're splitting the world into good or bad it's the whole black and white oh, thing sure, that children sure. do and the, some adults do the many duality adults of do. man the duality of man right um, so this apparently gets started when the child is very anxious about being fed the child wails and wails the mother comes and feed him and the anxiety is temporarily quelled, but then the child becomes anxious again because they don't know when their next meal is coming. Basically, this leads to the concept of good breast, bad breast is apparently how oh. this Klein, uh, Dr. Klein put it. The mother is split into the mother that feeds and the mother that abandons. Oh, Basically, good and bad. And hand that the giveth, the hand that taketh away. Exactly. The boob that giveth, the boob that taketh away. Exactly. Alright, so for the hobbits of the Shire, they're at a very simple level of psychological development. They're not uh, challenged mentally or psychologically very often. I mean, yeah, they got pretty easy lives and they very rarely encounter much in the way of moral ambiguity. And so they tend to split the world into goodies and baddies. And the goodies are everybody in the Shire, and the baddies is the outside world. Now, Klein apparently called this the paranoid schizoid position, which is a weird terminology because, like, they don't actually have paranoid schizophrenia. That sounds a little intense. I think it's a little little bit too intense for what we're describing. Absolutely. But anyway, so Frodo does this because he is at a early stage in his psychological development, even though he's 50 years old. Now, Frodo's first challenge to this worldview comes when he meets the hobbit Smeagol. Smeagol? And it's alter eagle Gollum, a good hobbit turned bad. Now, that is the, actually the duality of man right there. Like, right there. I mean, that's like literal splitting literal splitting yeah so how you feel being split producer Gollum um yeah how do you feel oh he loves it it's so good to be split into two 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 one half is very stupid and nice of me I'm, I'm the bad boob he's the bad breast I'm sure. the bad breast <sighs> and I'm the good one we giveth and I taketh away wow I've often said our producer is a boob, but this is ridiculous. (laughs) Very funny, masters. Very funny. Not funny. Not funny. We are not boob. Okay, I silenced them and turned the mic off. Yeah, Uh, don't just... Why do we even keep employing them? They don't do anything. You edit this. We all know you edit this. Producer Gollum does nothing. He hits the ones and twos while we're talking. Uh, He he hits the ones and twos. You don't even know what that means. I don't know what that means. I don't think he knows what that means. I don't think anybody knows what that means. I don't know what it means. So, when Frodo truly pities Gollum, he's no longer splitting, because he sees that good and bad can exist simultaneously in the same person. Not well, though. Well, in Gollum's case, no. I mean, but if you think about most human beings, most human beings are a mix of good and bad. I can be your angle or your devil. Or a twisted effing psychopath. 
Yeah. Now, uh, this is essentially a maturing and loss of innocence. And according to Klein, attaining this state is called the depressive position. Sounds like a bummer, yeah. So, yeah, it's kind of a bummer. Like, so when you turn into a mature adult, you are in the depressive position. I mean, I can vouch for the reality of that, but I don't think that's supposed to be like the ideal gotcha. <laughs> state of mature human beings. All right. So, um, this is kind of like what wraps up this study, but Frodo, suffering increasing physical and psychological torment without any reason to hope, continues with his self-appointed impossible quest in his depressive state, his mature depressive state. Here, the fight to carry on is an adaptive defense against death, a hopeful response to the depressive position supported in survival stories and the concept of resilience, so survivors aren't just damaged. Okay. So you could be in the depressive position and still continue on with life, but you are still depressed. How does that explain Gollum? It doesn't explain Gollum. This is supposed to explain Frodo. Oh, okay, okay, okay. There, well, that, you just wait. There's another study that explains oh, Gollum. Don't worry. Oh, don't right, worry. Right, I'm right. on it. I'm on it. Um, this one I'm going to briefly go through because it treads some of the same territory, but uh, this is by an author called Josh Brown, written on a blog called The 405 in 2016. Why living with depression is pretty much the plot of Lord of the Rings. I think it's pretty obvious the way Frodo's struggle with the ring mirrors falling into a major depressive episode. Um, but some of the interesting points he makes are that just as both Frodo and Bilbo end up blaming their violent outbursts on the ring, the acceptance of the fact that you are depressed can sometimes be used as like a get out of jail free card for all your irrational moments. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So it excuses problematic behavior as something seemingly beyond your control. Yeah, man. Um, another interesting point that they bring up. As Frodo goes through his journey, he comes to... This is obviously more the movie version, but he comes to mistrust Sam and trust Gollum. Yes. Sam is kind of the equivalent of all your friends and family members who actually care about you and are trying to push you to get better, and you resent them for it. Oh, because you're yeah. so depressed, it just seems unrealistic and, and difficult. And meanwhile, Gollum's like, you're, you're shady AF like uh toxic friend but you kind of cling more to him because you feel like he's like you and he's all you deserve so like you're you're, you're and he's enabling you sounds like mr frodo you ate a whole jar of peanut butter in one sitting and he's like frodo's like no sam i needed it and then smeagol's like yes we need the peanut butter have some more more eating's the only thing that makes me feel good sam the only thing it's more it's more oh mr frodo why don't you go jogging with friends yeah, it's like that. It's like that. It's like that. Taking responsibility is hard, especially when you already kind of hate yourself. Yeah. So, anyway, so there's a brief summary there. Now, this is the Gollum study. This is called A Precious Case for Middle Earth. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, um, this one's kind of fun just because of, like, the psychological lingo they use. Okay. Um, they, like, they, like, straight up go, like, DSM. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, it's great. All right, so this was done by a group of UCL medical students Mm -hmm. led by Dr. Liz Sampson. With too much time on their hands. Way too much time on their hands. And they studied Gollum's psychological state. They psychoanalyzed him and they came to the conclusion that he's actually suffering from schizoid personality disorder. Well, yeah, obviously. Well, not schizophrenia. 
schizoid personality. Right, that's what, that's what people think schizophrenia is, having, like, multiple personalities. Okay, so here's what's interesting. So I always thought when people said schizophrenia, Gollum has schizophrenia, they meant multiple personality disorders and were just confusing the two disorders. Right. But apparently it's not as cut and dry as that. Mm. Apparently people with schizophrenia can have multiple personalities, but the distinct... I'll get to the distinction in a second. Well, no, schizophrenia is when you when you hear voices, you hear thoughts that aren't your own. Mm-hmm. Right? I will get to the like the true distinction. Yeah. In just a minute. So in this paper, they describe Smeagol as a single 587-year-old hobbit-like male of no fixed abode. <laughs> <laughs> so he did like this whole medical profile. He had to list like all of his all of his previous conditions. Yes. And which medicines give him allergies and everything. Absolutely. And, okay. Allergic to latex. Yeah. He displays antisocial behavior, increasing aggression, and preoccupation with an object. In this case, the one ring. Yeah, yeah. He's spiteful to others and had only one friend who he later murdered for the ring. Yeah. I feel like at that point, the psychologist like has to get the authorities involved. You got right? it. That's a murder. Most foul. Yes. Now, um, thanks to his two personalities, Gollum and Smeagol, many people have speculated that he may have had schizophrenia uh, or multiple personality disorder. However, the fact that uh, the two personalities interact shows that Gollum is aware of both Smeagol and Gollum at the same time. Wait, talk which, to each other, yeah. Yeah, which precludes multiple personality disorder. Mm, Apparently, one at a time if the, yes, one at a time. And they're not necessarily aware of one another. I see. Okay. Yeah. So they interact. So that rules out multiple personality disorder, apparently. Gotcha. So the team from the Department of Mental Health Sciences says, quote, Gollum displays pervasive maladaptive behavior that has been present since childhood with a persistent disease course. His odd interests and spiteful behavior have led to difficulty in forming friendships and distress to others. Mm -hmm. He fulfills seven of the nine criteria for schizoid personality disorder and if if we must label Gollum's problems, we believe that this is the most likely diagnosis. So what are they going to do for him? What's it, how can they treat it? No, no treatment course. He's beyond saving. Oh, they're just going to lock him up. They're just going to lock him up. Throw him in a volcano. Forever. Okay. Yeah, exactly. They're just going to brush him right under the rug. Oh, well, that's kind of sad, actually. Yeah. I mean, he's dead, so it's kind of like too late. But anyway. if he wasn't, what, what could they do for him? Um, what? How do you treat schizoid person? Let's look it up. Hold on. No. Schizoid personality disorder... Treatment. I mean, surely they have medication. They have schizophrenia meds you can take. Let's see. Would you have to treat each personality individually? I don't think you're meant to do that. I think you're meant to try to integrate them. Teach them as one person. Yes. So, okay. Diagnosis of schizoid personality disorder is typically based on thorough discussion of your symptoms. Gom's not going to do that. No. Um, symptoms listed in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. We've already gone there. Yep. Medical and personal history. We've already gone there. Murdered yep. his friend. Yep. Has odd interests, etc. Yeah, yeah, et yeah, 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 yeah. All right, so if you have schizoid personality disorder, you may prefer to go your own way and avoid interacting with others, including doctors. Well, that's you hide in a cave for like hundreds of years. I would do it. You may be so used to a life without emotional closeness that you're not sure you want to change or that you can. I don't think Gollum wants to. I think he's fine. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think Smeagol does. I don't think Gollum does. So basically what they recommend is talk therapy. I mean, that's bog standard for anything. Okay. You just, you just like tell riddles though. Yeah. yeah. Can you imagine how frustrated his therapist would be? He told me the one about eggs again. He's going to be like, this, like, a, like a, So sick of sunshine on daisies. He's just going to be this distracted, like ancient man who's just like crawling around the office like- poking things and getting distracted and like kind of halfway listening and then yes. perking up when he hears a riddle and well this next suggestion would go even worse for Gollum I think group therapy oh no so a goal of individual therapy may be 
a group setting in which you can interact with others who are also practicing new interpersonal skills. In time, group therapy may also provide a support structure and improve your social skills. So one of the things they want to do with schizoid personality disorder is get you more socially adept. Sure, yeah, have you talked to folks, have a group group therapy. Now, I can't see Gollum ever being good at like small talk. He's never going to oh, sit no. there and talk about the weather we've recently had... Uh, what, what are your plans for the weekend? No. His plans for the weekend are killing orcs, sucking on eggs, and fondling jewelry. Yeah, that's it. In that order. Yeah. Uh, medications. So there's no specific drug to treat schizoid personality disorder, but certain drugs can help with issues such as anxiety or depression. They didn't have those that's Middle Earth. That's essentially what so, you... They didn't uh, have them in Middle Earth. He'd be screwed. In fact, he'd be screwed right up until like the 1950s or 60s. So uh, news isn't good for Gollum. And it's going to get even worse in a later study, but we'll get oh, to that gosh. in a minute. Okay. All right. So as I was looking up scientific studies about Lord of the Rings, I found a great number of instances of scientists naming new species of living creatures after characters from Lord of the Rings. Is that the word you're looking for? It wasn't the word I'm looking for, but it's the word I'm going to use. There's, for example, a genus of wasps in New Zealand. They are called Shireplitus. Okay, because they filmed Lord of the Rings in New Zealand. Sure. And the species are S. Bilboi, S. Frodoi, S. Mariadoki, S. Peregrini, S. Samwisey, and S. Tolkieny. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, the wasps bear the names of the hobbits because they too are, quote, small, short, and stout. Just like a wasp. I wouldn't want to see a wasp that's like... Real, real gangly and lithe. I don't think I would enjoy that. I I would not enjoy that. Imagine if the hobbits were wasps, like, like, why, like, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants? Well, they kind of are. Yeah, I'm talking like they, they look like the same, the same dimensions as a hobbit, but it's like a big wasp. I don't like that. And they're kind of like you're just around. you just want me to imagine a child's a human child-sized wasp, and I will not do that. Wearing like a little waistcoat and uh, like talking the same way. With like little antennas. I will not imagine it. I won't. You can keep describing it. I will not imagine it. I refuse. Okay. The shutters are closed. Now, on the other side of the size spectrum, there is a 900 pound ancient crocodile called Anthrocosuchus balrogus. Ooh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah, after the balrog. And that's an extinct crocodile. Extinct crocodile. 9,000 years extinct. Wow. All right. Several other animal species have also been named after characters from the books. Uh, For example, there's a dinosaur named Sauron. Well, that sore. So it's already got, it's already got that. It's right there. Lizard. I know. There's not the opportunity, and they took it. But still, you know what? The name dinosaurs after Sauron. They're called dinosaurs. Oh my god! What if they did? Oh wait, um, they discovered dinosaurs in like the 1800s. Yeah, and, yeah. And Tolkien wasn't writing then. Well, Sauron was around before that. Sauron was around before that. Maybe it was like some ancient ancestral DNA memory of Sauron. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, there's also a geologically interesting region in Australia called the Mordor Alkaline Igneous Complex. A pair of asteroids called Tolkien and Bilbo, and a crater on Mercury also called Tolkien. All right. Now, uh, it's not just limited to naming things after Tolkien's creations. Sometimes there are people who look at things mentioned in Tolkien's books, and they try to find their real-world equivalents, because Lord of the Rings supposedly took place on an ancient version of our Earth. So they're trying to find, like, what are the what are the Ents? What are the Hobbits? What are well, it? more specifically, they're trying to figure out what stars he was talking about. Oh, come on. For example, the likelihood that the heavenly body Borgel can be identified as the star Aldebaran. Okay, I mean, yeah, all right. 
right? So Tolkien had a general interest in astronomy. Several authors have summarized that. They've mentioned the breadth of astronomical illusions contained in his work. But here's the specific passage that we're going to talk about. The night grew on, and the lights in the valley went out. Pippin fell asleep, pillowed on a green hillock. Away high in the east swung Remorath, the netted stars, and slowly above the mists red Borgel rose, glowing like a jewel of fire. Then, by some shift of airs, all the mist was drawn away like a veil, and there leaned up, as he climbed over the rim of the world, the swordsman of the sky, Menelvigor with his shining belt. So, he describes three stars there, right? Remirath, Borgel, and Menelvigor. Now, based on the chronology laid out in The Return of the Shadow, and also published in Appendix B of Return of the King, these scientists have determined that this night when Pippin was sleeping under the stars occurred on the 24th of September. Okay. Tolkien was very, very explicit about what days things happened on, right? right? Yeah, okay. So this allows one to specify with relative certainty the identity of Remoroth, Borgil, and Menelvigor. And the identity of Borgil is Aldebaran, or Aldebaran. But we don't know how long ago this was. I think they've taken that into account, Ryan. Unfortunately, the full article is behind a paywall, so we'll oh, never know. <laughs> I just the stars we have changed over know. time. Obviously, some some there's new stars since then. I mean, it could have been a really long time ago. There could be completely different stars in the sky, right? Mm, I think if you look at like Roman chronicles and stuff, we can determine that like stars were the same. But they we just came up at like different times. We're going back before that, we're going back like. Possibly. We don't even know, like, millions of years. We don't know how far back the ages true. were. That's true. I'm not sure exactly how they accounted for that, nor will I ever know, because paywall. So, uh, here's another fun one. Okay. I like this one a lot. Sure. This is by the team of Hopkinson and Hopkinson. Whether they're brothers or father and son, I don't know. They're the same guy. They're the same man, but the title is The Hobbit, An Unexpected Deficiency. Sorry? Objective. I'm gonna just read the study, because it's great. Is it? Objective. Is it a long study? No, okay. I'm just reading, like, the intro to it. I'm not All reading right. the whole thing. All right, right. Vitamin D has been proposed to have beneficial effects in a wide range of contexts. We investigate the hypothesis that vitamin D deficiency caused by both aversion to sunlight and unwholesome diet could also be a significant contributor to the triumph of good over evil in fantasy literature. So, you don't go outside enough, you might not do well. Because you're a baddie. Baddies don't go outside, and they have crappy diets. Okay. It's just a given. Summary. A striking feature of fantasy literature has been the consistent victory of good characters over bad. While the consensus has been to attribute this to narrative conventions about morality and the necessary happiness of endings, we hypothesize that a major contribution to the defeat of evildoers in this context is their aversion to sunlight and their poor diet, which may lead to vitamin D deficiency and hence reduced martial prowess. I would argue that the reason the heroes win is because the the, the stories are written by the victors, and bit of a bit of a you know a, a adjustment to the stories, a bit of a context, you know. So basically, I'm saying the story did nothing wrong. Ryan, uh, they approach this scientifically. You don't even know. They didn't even start with that basic assumption that the story we're hearing is the true story, exactly how it happened, and that every character is as good as. Lord they of the Rings is a history. The events are reliable. Well, I want to Ryan, you-, you know how uh, there is more proof that Jesus existed than Abraham Lincoln, or at least that's a thing I was told like many, many times as a child. I've never had that. There <laughs> is more proof that Gandalf existed than Jesus. I mean, I believe that. 
is a thing that I said just now. I mean, it sounds true. Yeah. So listen. Anyway, this continue, is continue the stupid study. Okay. Okay. So, main outcome measures. Goodness and victoriousness of characters were scored with binary scales, and dietary intake and habitual sun exposure were used to calculate a vitamin D score. Range 0 to 4. This guy never got out of his split stage, did he? Uh, no, he's not yet in his depressive stage, or he'd be too depressed to write this. Results. The vitamin D score was significantly higher among the good and victorious characters than the evil and defeated ones. So basically... One of the things they conclude is that Gollum couldn't catch Bilbo in the caves because he was vitamin D deficient. I mean, he was super weak. He was like hundreds of years old. He had not been in the sunlight for hundreds of years, and he was just eating orcs. Filthy orcses. So he had vitamin D deficiency, probably among a lot of other things. Uh, I, I mean, he was dude was amazing. Quite, quite a bit. Yes. So that's why he couldn't catch Bilbo in the cave. That's their, their shiny piece of evidence. Yeah. That vitamin D makes you a hero. I mean, once again, paywall, so I didn't read the whole thing, but that's what I presume. Don't you have, like, JSTOR or something? Can't you, uh... I don't have JSTOR. What do I look like? A millionaire? You look like a former grad student. What do I look like? A professor with a million dollars? I don't have JSTOR. Okay. How dare you say I have JSTOR? Here's another one that I just called the stabbing study because I couldn't actually get the link to work and so I only read a study, <laughs> okay. a summary of it on another article. The question, could Frodo really have survived being stabbed by a cave troll even if he was wearing impenetrable mithril armor? Answer, yes, but he would at least have fractured his sternum, which would have made escape impossible. Well, that's kind of like a bulletproof vest. They stop a bullet, but you're still going to get some bruises, right? Yeah, so he had a cracked sternum, which may have been another reason why he was feeling so sad. All right. Broke his sternum. Probably get, a sliver of it went into his heart. Just get some of that vitamin D and he'll be okay. Yeah, he'll be fine. But he's not going to find it in a cave. He has to get out of that cave no, first. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mine's a Moria. No, no Here's another one. There. This is The Climate of Middle-Earth, and it's written by Radagast the Brown. Hang on. The pseudonym. A... He is a real professor, Hang but he used the pseudonym Radam- Radagast the Brown. I trust him. His mind is ever by mushrooms. Yeah, he's baked as hell. All right, so several aspects of the Middle-Earth simulation are discussed, including the importance of prevailing wind direction for elvish sailing boats, the effect of heat and drought on the vegetation of Mordor, and the rain shadow effects of the Misty Mountains. I also identify those places in the modern Earth which have the most similar climate to the regions of the Shire and Mordor. Now, I'm just going to give you... I'm going to cut right to the chase. This guy, man. The climate of the Shire is most similar to Lincolnshire or Leicestershire. Cool. In England, and Mordor is most similar to Los Angeles or West Texas. So hot desert, hot desert. Now these are the guys; they'd have fun reading a spreadsheet, you know. I mean, yeah, for fun, yeah. Like, All right, that they prefer Lord of the Rings to be like a, a technical manual. I mean, it is very dry, which is probably what attracts them to it. Yeah, I guess so. You ready for one more? Yeah, lay it on me. This one I just called oxygen content. Again, I was not able to access the article itself, so I had to read a summary on another site. All right. This is by two dudes called Walker and Cooper Dunn. Now, using the gas exchange equation, test specimen Aragorn and his, quote, tireless defense on Helm's Deep against an onslaught of orcs. Richard Walker and Alice Cooper Dunn. Sorry, I called you a dude, Alice. Alice Cooper? Alice Cooper like, Dunn. It's Cooper Dunn. Presumably oh. that's why she hyphenates her name. Of the University of Leicester, estimated a 10% increase in atmospheric O2 concentration in Middle Earth compared to our Earth. 
Quote, although Aragorn gives his age to be 87, he displays the physical prowess of a man assumed to be in their mid-30s due to him being from a magical race of men, the Dunedain, gifted with a long life, they write. Therefore, his age will be approximated to be 35 for the purposes of calculating his arterial partial pressure of oxygen. Walker and Cooper Dunn write that Aragorn's arterial partial pressure of oxygen, the amount of oxygen in the blood, is 54% higher than the highest of the normal human range, indicating his superior endurance. Quote, therefore, a higher atmospheric oxygen content is shown to confer considerable physical advantage due to the higher oxygen levels in the blood, which are available to the tissues, they conclude. But it wouldn't be just Aragorn It'd be in that case, would it? It would be like literally everybody, so shouldn't it all balance out? Not everyone's a dunadine. you got little hobbits running around, mm-hmm. you got dwarves. Well, that's true, that's true, that's true. But they make it sound like his oxygen, his arterial partial pressure of oxygen is higher just because of the higher oxygen content. How'd they come to that conclusion? Why would there be higher oxygen content? Because there's like Balrogs running around? Is that why? Because like big things require more oxygen? Like, is that the thing? No, it's just because... It's olden he, days. It's just because it's olden days and he rules at fighting. <laughs> <sighs> Joanna. This he, is, he rules at it. These, I mean, I'm not saying no, he does not rule at fighting. <laughs> he rules at fighting. You've seen him. I'm just Even saying, though he's 87, there's got to be some higher oxygen in his arterial partial yeah, pressure. Don't get me wrong, he's cool, he rules, he quit school, but like, my god, academia. Are you questioning Alice Cooper? I mean, no, I think he's a wonderful musician. Yeah. Um, hail Satan, but I think that the University of Leicestershire, what is that what you said? Leicester? I, I don't know how to say, I don't know how to say British words. That big, and that's intentional. That dumb big Yale University, they don't give him money to do stupid things. Yeah. I can't trust these, these highfalutin, high, high average tower academias. Ryan, scientists are allowed to have fun, too. They're going to tell me that God is dead, and they're going to tell me that oxygen was real big back then. <laughs> oxygen was big! The actual <laughs> molecules of O2 were flipping They're going to tell me this guy rules a fight. He does rule a fight, but I, I beg to differ that, uh, you know, I think everybody rules a fight in that place. I mean, you done seen those things fighting each other, the little uh, hairy fellers fighting? They done good at it. That's because they also had high arterial partial pressure of oxygen. I don't know what them words mean. All I know is that blood is going good in them and they're fighting in the rules. I don't know if this comes across on the recording, but every time I say arterial partial pressure of oxygen, like, I run out of breath. I, well, By I, the end of it, I'm like, Ugh! It sounds like you're running out of arterial pressure of oxygen. Well, maybe if the atmospheric oxygen was 54% higher than the highest of the normal human range, I wouldn't be. Now you're just saying numbers. That don't make a lick of sense. Actually, huh? it doesn't. Hypothetically, Gilgul, you are right. Hey, I done right. Guess that was a good thing I did not vaccinate my kids and that we're going to heaven. Now, <laughs> I don't know how to respond to that. All right. <laughs> what do you have for Star Wars? Well, Joanna, you told me you're doing science. I and am. I said, yeah. I freaking love science. I know. I know, you FLS. I freaking love Neil deGrasse Tyson. I freaking love... Bill Nye, I freaking love... I dare you to name a third scientist. I dare you. Carlos Seganos. The Spanish Carlos Seganos. <laughs> the Spanish. Hola. Me llamo Carlos Seganos. <laughs> Los billions and billions. Billions. El Star Stuffo. <laughs> 
I'll say this for Carlos Saganos. Whether yeah. you love him or hate him, he's damn good at what he does. I'll say. Anywho, um, Star Wars is also no stranger to people trying to apply science to it because it is none other than a science fiction tale. But actually, it's a fantasy tale because it's all about magic. No, it's all about lasers. It's about magic and spiritualism and, I guess, Vietnam. And outer space. And what's more scientific than outer space with a laser in it? Um, I mean, outer space and the laser are just outer space and the laser until you apply the scientific method. That's when they become scientific. Well, that's what people have done with Star Wars, because... Have they indeed? Every few years, they trot out some article, they trot out some TV thing, some YouTube thing, being like, the science behind blank from Star Wars! Actually, I do think that, like, lightsabers or something Star Wars was in one of Neil deGrasse Tyson's books. Almost certainly. Yeah. He's one of those guys... Who they want to point out, well, actually, they're all actually guys. And so we get all these articles every few years being, well, actually. Um, but he said it could work. So do these articles I found. Oh, but, okay. Um, so, yeah, I kind of have talked about in the show, I've talked about hyperdrives and all the made-up science there. I've talked about droids and all the made-up science there. And one thing that always gets hits when these things roll around every few years is the weaponry of Star Wars. Oh, because nerds love some effing weapons. I love weapons and swords and guns. So I'm going to talk about why there's science and guns. They're forever six-year-old boys. Basically. So I went through a few different parts of it. And, you know, like you you mentioned, nerds love this stuff there. If nerds are pedantic about anything, it's going to be like military tech. Yes! Stuff like that. So So irritating. Like, actually, that... The shape on that wing flap would not be seen for another nine years. This is ahistorical. Right. It'll be like the, the guys who talk about how the gun sounds are wrong. I'm like, you know, like, well, actually, he was using a Beretta and that made the sound of a, of a, of a nine caliber. Like, Psst, I'm going to tell you a secret. Yeah. Nobody but you gives a shit. No. Anyway, I have a few articles I found about different parts of Star Wars. And so this article, first one I found, is called The Science of Star Wars Weaponry by a guy called Patrick Johnson. And this is on a site called Nautilus. It's like kind of a pop science website. I've heard of it before, yeah. It's not bad. But I think you'll find that good old Patrick here, he kind of misses the point. Let's go through it. So here's here's how it starts. If you're already a Star Wars fan, you know that the stories take place in the galaxy far, far away. So the laws of physics should still apply. On the other hand, these are obviously works of fiction. Is there any point to applying these laws? Yes. No. (laughs) No. If you're asking about any Hollywood movie, is there any point in applying the laws of physics? The answer is no. It is both fun and worthwhile to do. Is it? Is it fun or does it kill fun? Sometimes the physics shown in the movies is spot on, while other occasions it would require advanced technology or new discoveries in the realm of physics to make sense. We'll start with lightsabers. You mentioned this just now. Okay, so tell me why lightsabers wouldn't work. Okay, so lightsabers... In the movies, they're considered to be a beam of pure energy. Yes. You have this little flashlight handle, you hit the button. It's plasma, isn't it? Well, isn't the most likely candidate plasma? We'll get into that. Yeah. Okay. It describes it in the in the movies as like a pure beam of energy. So they're about three feet long, usually. Some are shorter, some are longer. The, the things that Patrick, the two theories he, he presents are, it can be a beam of light or it can be a beam of plasma. Beams of light are tricky to contain because the photons of light are very difficult to turn around or stop in midair. Perhaps the easiest way to create a three-foot-long beam would be a mirror opposite the hilt of the sword to reflect the light. But it doesn't have that on it. This is obviously not the design presented, uh, since when they're off, lightsabers are no longer than their hilts. The sound of a lightsaber turning on could be the sound of a mirror extending outward, as if it were uncapping a container full of light, but there are still other issues. For example, the fact that the beam is visible light, like a laser pointer. 
The power of a visible light laser pointer would need to be upped by a factor of about a thousand before it could do any damage, and a laser of that power would require an extensive cooling system on top of that. Further, as far as we know, a beam of light, no matter how powerful, is incapable of deflecting a bolt of plasma shot by a blaster. I mean, how many beams of light have you met? Because every single one I've ever met is totally able to absorb So Patrick's saying, it's a beam of light. Not only is it not strong enough to cut anything, it can't even block a laser bolt, and it would need to have like this massive cooling fan on the back of it. To keep so it basically, news, newsflash, Patrick thinks light sucks. Yeah, light... Light sucks. Single thumbs down. Patrick. Up. Patrick says this. Now, let's consider plasma. He gives it a 14% on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, absolutely. There's a different set of concerns with plasma. A well-designed electromagnetic field could, in principle, contain a plasma to the size of about three feet. Maybe by sending the plasma in a highly elliptical path to create roughly the shape of a cylinder. Yeah. So you send it out, and the electrical magnetic field sends it back into the hilt. Yeah. Right? Plasmas are also hot enough to cauterize wounds and melt metal. Yeah. So, so far on the right track. The problems arise if you consider dueling with those plasma beams, because the charged particles of plasma, when they clash together, would actually be attracted to each other, and they would fuse into one lightsaber. Um, who says they don't, but maybe the Jedi are so strong that they can just pull them apart again. With the Force. With the Force, because it's fantasy. This would also be difficult. It could deflect a blaster bolt because it would just suck into the sword. Maybe Uh, it does. Really nonsense. The color of plasmas depend on the temperature. So in that respect, a red lightsaber would be lower energy than a green one, assuming they are both made of the same material. So wouldn't it suck more? Yeah, it would. So why do Sith use them? Because they suck. Oh. I don't know. Since plasmas are often at a temperatures of millions of degrees, holding a plasma stick in your hand would be lead to some severe burns. So the sun, also made of plasma, is 93 million miles away, and we need to wear sunscreen to protect us from it, despite the fact that there is atmosphere blocking most of the harmful radiation that hits Earth. So holding a miniature stick-shaped sun in our hands would require SPF 10,000. Are you telling me the Jedi don't have that technology? I think they do. I think they could definitely get some mega SPF. Like, if you were to get zoom in on Obi-Wan, he's like oily. He's really oily. They're all oily all the time. And you know what? They have that kind of nice smell too. Okay. Because of like coconut or whatever. When I went to New Zealand, there's, okay, there's a hole in the ozone layer above it, right? So the sun is like really, really bright and you burn easily. And so they have wicked good sunscreen. Sure. And you're telling me that the Jedi wouldn't have even better sunscreen? Surely the Jedi are more advanced than New Zealand. Certainly. Certainly. That means everyone who they swing it at would also have to wear the same sunscreen because it'd be like having a sun swing, swing at your face. like Maybe that's how they actually kill each other. Oh, maybe. They just swing it at each other when they're not wearing sunscreen. Like, when they're fresh out of the shower, they're like, ah! <laughs> So Patrick continues. I'm so burned! <laughs> there could certainly be some other explanation as to how lightsabers work, but it could be either not based in reality, for example, using the magic of a kyber crystal, or an incredible feat of engineering involving much more than just light or even plasma. Oh, Patrick, I'll let you know right now, it's magic. It's special effects, pal. It's Hollywood magic. So, Patrick, myth busted. Lightsabers, not real. Good job, Patrick. Good job, Patrick. Hey, I- hey, Pat, Patrick's a fun guy at parties. Myth busted. Oh, oh. I wanted the second opinion, so I went on the Wikipedia talk page for oh, lightsabers. Oh, yeah, Wikipedia is going to give you the most up-to-date scientific intel. So here's a thought by Extrasolar4. Who says, we don't know is a scientist or has any scientific training. Well, he's a scientist. You can tell by his comments. Oh, really? I've been doing research on laser-based lightsabers. Basically, it would need to be a class 4 or 5 laser beam enveloped in an electromagnetic field to repel other laser lightsabers. But there are two things. A safety issue for the eyes... And something to make the electromagnetic field only repel the lightsabers. Any thoughts or comments? So, you know, pretty pretty mundane. I don't know what the whole class four or five lightsaber light means. I'll just assume that's a thing that he probably read in a book like just now. Now, Consimus has a response here. 
How about anti-protons being shot out, then pulled back by a positively charged coupling? The coloring light crystal would cause the gamma rays emitted via antimatter annihilation to lose energy via fluorescence, along with at least partially explaining the gyroscopics and the no-heat conundrum. When it comes to heat, human nerves are the first thing to burn from heat, and the synapses generate a feeling cold from no longer having body heat detected by those nerves. Too complicated an answer? Watch the first Punisher movie. What? <laughs> what? What are you talking about? Consensus <laughs> is a scientist. Consumus, sorry. Consumus is a scientist. You can tell. He watches Punisher. So if blasters are plasma weapons, a blaster would compress Tabana gas, a substance mined in places such as Cloud City. We talked uh-huh. about that. Uh-huh. Like, the farts. The farts from the big whales. So wait, so the blasters are also shooting farts? Yeah, we talked about that. Yeah. Starships are powered by them as well as blasters. Everything's farts. It's farts So all in down. Star Wars, the blaster has a, a, a gas canister that's kind of the ammo pack yeah. that is sent through a power cell, and that charged gas is the bolt that comes out. So do the bolts smell? Like, you get shot, you're like, oh, I'm shot, and also it smells! I did actually read, there's, like there's a quote in the Blasters article on Wikipedia about Han Solo saying that um, after firing your gun a lot, it smells kind of like raw meat. Like Ooh, like burning raw meat. Like raw buttholes. Yeah. So, obviously, Tabana gas doesn't exist in our world, and so Patrick has tried to understand it with some real-world materials to understand this fictional substance. The fictional substance, I you can understand it by farting. It's farts. Yeah. First, we need to know what temperature Tabana gas becomes Tabana plasma. So, fairly consistent with other materials on Earth, um, most things become a plasma at around 360,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So, pretty hot farts. Uh, there's a problem with blast shooting plasma, though. A plasma is made up of charged particles that will experience forces from electromagnetic fields. A plasma bolt shot at 73 miles per hour, a decent estimate for the speed of blaster bolts in Star Wars, according to Patrick, would only require a field of about, about a million times weaker than Earth's magnetic field to cause a bolt to move one and a half feet to the right or left. So this could explain why blasters are kind of unpredictable and random and why stormtroopers miss all the time. In fact, he says, if a stormtrooper was firing a shot on Earth, the bolt would not only miss its target, but it would travel in such a tight circle that it would hit the gun from which it was shot. <laughs> That's a funny picture. Actually. That's yeah. actually really funny. It is much more likely that there are no magnetic fields in scenes where blasters are red than engineers who designed the blasters found a way to slow down light. Yeah. So you know what? I could have reached the same conclusion by just farting into a gun. <laughs> a three hundred sixty thousand degree fart. Just eating a lot of really spicy food, just drinking a bottle of sriracha and farting into a gun. Which is, you know, to me, that's a Tuesday. But it'd be comical because it would shoot out the gun and then back into your butt. Yeah, it'd be really funny when I died from <laughs> that. So he went on to talk about some other weapons, but I was tired of his article, so I went looking for other ones. Okay. And I found an article that talks about the Death Star. The science of the Death Star. Cool. This is from a site called interestingengineering.com. Mm-hmm. Also, some information from Forbes.com. There's an article on there. Forbes? Yeah, like the business site. Like, how many rich assholes would you need to make this? Kind of? I don't know why it came from Forbes. And how low should we make their taxes? They have, like, a science reporter over there, I guess. I don't know. So, there's some brief little excerpts from this. Annihilating a planet the size of the Earth with a super laser requires an astonishing 2.24 Gigawatts? times 10 to the 32nd power joules. Okay. I assume that's, that's a lot a, of zeros. I assume that's astonishing. Now, that is to, a lot of zeros. To put this in perspective, the sun emits 3.8, 10 to the 26 joules per second. So therefore, this Death Star would need to have stored that energy uh, for about a week before it could even shoot its laser off. Well, I mean, like, it doesn't seem like the destruction of Alderaan is, like, a, a thing that they do regularly. No, no, they definitely so, charge it up so, to do that. Yeah. They, they make a big point of, like, charging those super lasers. Right. Maybe not for a week, but a pretty long time. 
Additionally, even if this fortress could store that much energy, its solid mass, floating in space, projecting yada joules of energy in a single direction. What are yada joules? Well, it's like those Japanese guys, the leaf in front of their junk. Yada, yada, joules. Yada, yada joules. This would cat. So, this is kind of funny. So, if we were to fire its, its super laser with that much energy in a single direction, it would catapult the Death Star 50 miles per second in the opposite direction. <laughs> That's actually a really good point. So, it'd be like. Talking to me like, fire when ready. And then, <laughs> just launch, backwards. launch backwards into space. That's actually a pretty good point. I'll yeah. give him that. I just thought that was funny. So let's move on to another example of the Empire's engineering, maybe not making the most scientific sense. This is an article from news.com.au. This is an Australian news site. Uh-huh. Talking about AT-ATs and the Last Jedi equivalent, the ATM-6. What's an ATM-6? You've seen The Last Jedi? Mm-hmm. You know, they're on the salt planet at the end. Yeah. It's the AT-ATs in that part. Not how, how are they different? They have more like gorilla arms, if you look at them. Oh, okay. And they actually have built-in blades to cut tow cables, which I thought was kind of cool. Cool, because that was definitely a design oversight. Right. So the all-terrain armored transporter, AT-AT, stands at about 20 meters tall. Its flexible head is both the vehicle's control center and mount for its weapons. On board are 40 heavily armed and armored Imperial stormtroopers. But can any of this translate to a real battlefield? The AT is not the most effective design, says Australian Strategic Policy Institute senior analyst Dr. Malcolm Davis. And and you have to read it like that. Armored carriers must be fast, maneuverable, and responsive. They must have a low profile to remain unobserved and not shot at for as long as possible. And if they are hit by enemy weapons, they must offer their human cargoes the best chance of survival. I could never figure out why Lucas went for legs on the AT, apart from what he saw as being in terms of flexible in all terrains, says Dr. Malcolm Davis. I mean, they could just hover. He's already established that things can hover. There's a second scientist here, so I'll do a little different voice. Okay. One, if the only advantage of legs is that you can step over things you can't trundle over in a tracked vehicle, says ASPI's director, Defense and Strategy Program, Dr. Andrew Davies. So they would work okay in terrains with lots of obstacles, the exact opposite of an ice planet. Oh, okay. So saying like on hot, they slip around like a bunch so of... So on hot, they would. They'd, they'd look dumb. They'd be, they'd like, be like Keystone Cops. They'd be like dogs on ice skating ring. could be silly. And given they have anti-gravity in the Star Wars universe, as evident by Luke's land speeder, why not hover tanks? I mean, that's what I just said. They'd be much faster, more responsive, and adaptive. So this back to Dr. Davis. Speed and agility would make Imperial forces much more effective and quick to close in on those defensive lines of rebel troops. Leia and Han would never have made it to the Millennium Falcon, and the movie would have been over. Well, like, so he gets it. One of the big disadvantages of legs is that they're inefficient, says Dr. Andrew Davies. The only reason that animals don't have wheels is that there's no way to make a bearing that rotates and has blood vessels passing through it. So Andrew Davies is proposing that animals would have wheels if they had the veins to do it. I wonder if he still has legs or if he cut his off. And I'll cut mine off and I'll put it up. Where is it? Legs are inefficient. That's why I cut mine off. Cut me off and now I have these, these sick traits. <laughs> Just I roll, I go on a walkabout. If I saw some I Australian traits. guy with like tank dreads <laughs> instead of legs, I'm not ashamed to say I would shit. I'm the ultimate evolution of man. I've, I've transcended feet. I got treads, baby. I'm Dr. Andrew Davies. Its most vulnerable components, including its human cargo, are up high on an at Oh yeah, so if it falls, they die. In plain sight, sitting on a box. And so it's got this slab-sided body. Like, the the legs are very slab-shaped. The body's this big, barn-type yeah. shape. It presents an easy target, obviously. Slab size would be to avoid it because, A, they make great targets for shaped charge rounds that penetrate, and B, they stick out like a dog's bollocks on radar. Did he really just talk about a dog's 
balls. Dr. Andrew Davies cut his feet off to turn into treads. He's pretty tough. Angle saw If you like did a- that, would your balls drag on the ground? Speaking of balls. My bollocks are on treads as well. <laughs> he made tinier treads for his balls. <laughs> so uh, now I have to imagine this Australian man in a lab coat with tank treads instead of legs, and also underneath him are his balls dangling on a set of smaller treads. They're tiny. They hang out like a dog's bollocks on radar, but I'm brave. I can handle it. Angle sides like on a stealth fighter would be much better. The AT walkers don't score well on those design features. So somehow that armor's too thick for blasters, so we use harpoons to entangle the legs, which raises the key vulnerability of any bipedal or quadrupedal walking machine, says Dr. Malcolm Davis. Take out one leg and the whole thing falls over. Yeah, that's how legs work. While the First Order has learned something from the Battle of Hoth, by adding serrated edges on the walker's legs to sever cables, it doesn't appear to have been enough. That AT is poorly armed, with guns only pointing forward below a vulnerable crew compartment, says Dr. Davis. So the AT can only attack on one front, and must move his head completely to target the weapons. Yeah. Right? Not great. A better system would be a turreted weapons, and on a large vehicle like an AT, you could have a lot of turrets with laser weapons to shoot down snow speeders, he says. Yeah, yeah. Dr. Davis says the most realistic science fiction uh, armored warfare weapon he has encountered are the Bolo tanks, which appear in novels by Keith Laumer. A Bolo is a very large, AI-based, self-aware robotic tank that would make short work of that rebel scum. This is just, like, I want to talk about my favorite science fiction yeah, so novel. Bolo. So I've looked at Bolo. The Bolo universe is a fictional universe uh, of military science fiction uh-huh. by Keith Laumer. Sounds like what this guy would it like. It primarily revolves around the eponymous Bolo, self-aware robotic tank. Oh, so it's an entire science fiction book about a tank. Dude, like... Like, tank fans? What do we call tank fans? You just call them tank fans? Anyway. We call them tankies. I'm one of them. Tankies, dude. Like, they would go bonkers for that book. Bolo, baby. Oh, man. Forget treads. He's definitely going to put his balls on bolos. Bolo, baby. Yeah, so Dr. Davis got to tell Dr. Davies about the bolo tanks so he could maybe get some uh, some upgrades to his tank legs. Yeah. Anyway, that's why AT-ATs are BS and wouldn't work. I mean, like, military. but they look cool and kind of scary. That's the point, right? So yeah. it, my... my Maybe it's psychological warfare. My conclusion here. Okay, yeah, you're right about AT-ATs. George Lucas picked them because he wanted to remind people of the War of the Worlds tripods. Yeah. And also just create this imposing threat. This giant looming being. They're scary. Clomping across the ice. They're viscerally scary, even though they can be taken out by, like, pre-industrial teddy bears. Right. So, yeah, in conclusion, Star Wars is more fantasy than science fiction. Lord of the Rings is fantasy fiction. Things don't work in their worlds because of science. Uh, They have internal rules and logic, but it's not science. They work because the plot tells them they need to work. Okay. All it's it's maybe fun to apply science to fictional things in a fictional world. Some funny mental pictures, but in the end, guys, be like Mr. Science Theater. Remember, it's just a show. You should really just Just relax. relax. It's good. It's a good note to end it on, Ryan. Mm -hmm. Good note to end it on. Should we explain our new game? Our new game hasn't started yet, but it will next week. Um, It's going to be hot. It's going to be spicy. We're going to go for the most volcanic... Like, we're talking about, like, a plasma... uh, A sword made of 360,000 degree farts. Farts. That doubles back on you and zips right off your butthole. Because our next game is going to be... Do you have a name for it? We're looking for... The Hottest Takes. Yeah, there we go. The hot, the hot, the hot, the hot, the hottest takes. What take's going to be hotter than the volcano of Mount Doom? Which take is going to be hotter than the planet Mustafar? 
We're going to find out because every week from here on out, we're going to scour the internet and all of its wonderful fan sites and all that. And we're, we're going to find the fan with the hottest, I mean, white hottest take on the internet. And but by, by saying white hot take, we're saying the stupidest. We're going to say it's going to suck. Like, it's going to be the worst it's, take it's we gonna can be find. It's going to be a very bad opinion, but it's going to be spicy. It's going to be hot. You're not going to be able to keep your... Our eyes on this thing because it's going to be so freaking hot. You're going to need 100,000 SPF sunscreen. Just to check out this freaking contest. And so, yeah, just like our Worst Name Challenge, we'll, we'll post the takes to you guys. And you can help us decide which is the hottest of the takes and which is cold as ice. I can tell you already that Lord of the Rings fans have some terrible opinions. Oh, I think you would know firsthand that Star Wars fans also do. Which is... Kind of why we picked this. Yes. So we'll see how this goes. We'll try it a few weeks, and you can help us figure out who's got the hot takes. The hot, the hot, the hot, the hot, the hottest take. Perfect. Got the theme song figured out already. We got to do it now. Yeah. All right, guys. Thank you for listening. Again, pardon our delay, but thank you for being patient. We will have more out soon when we get around to it. You can check us out on Facebook, our Twitter, our website, all those things we talk about. Every single week. And I don't feel like talking about this time. Yeah. Radio stuff on iTunes. Apple Podcasts. Give us a rating. Say, these guys, they took like two weeks off for no reason, but the show's okay. I respect it. I, I'd sell I can respect it. It's I'd fine. Sell, sell I, was, I, I was annoyed, but like mildly. Mildly so, annoyed. So four out of five. Um, but their glorious return really just put a spring in my step and made the sunshine come out on a rainy day. I love when they make fun of dumb scientists. I love when they tell me that science is nonsense. I love when they tell me that science is bullcrap and I shouldn't listen to it. That's my favorite part. Yeah. That is, that right there is the hottest take. So all you um, epic science bros out there, uh, see you later. Bye. Bye.